I was watching interviews with John Waters and uh, I was watching this like big long one. It was like an hour long thing he did with the BFI a few years ago where they invited him to England and he was showing some of his movies and they had like an hour long conversation. And uh, at a certain point, uh, I forget like the exact context to it, but he was talking about, you know, just like his legacy as being like a weirdo movie buff and uh, a guy that, you know, started to become known for that and critics, people like that, you know, and he'd have relationships with or whatever. And he told this story where he's like, yeah, you know, uh, uh, one time uh, Gene Siskel called me up and, uh, and you know, he was just talking to me and he was just like, John, like, do you know where I can see a snuff film? And he's like, I told Gene, like, there's no such thing. Come on. And he was like, Gene, Gene was like, no, I know that you know where we can go see one. Would you take me to see a snuff film in a theater? And John was like, Gene, they don't exist. There's no, there's no such thing. And he was like, Gene Siskel Holy kept bothering fuck. him to be like, I know you know where I can see one. <laughs> like wanted Dude, to, that yeah. adds up. That Holy tracks. Fuck. That <laughs> yeah. doesn't surprise me at all. That that <laughs> like secretly, you know. Two thumbs up. <laughs> yeah, two thumbs up. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the things straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders. I'm one of your hosts, and I am joined here with, as always... Eric Marsh. And... Andrew Stasiulis. The Gauntlet, for those who may be tuning in for the first time, is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us is tasked with selecting a theme for the week. That was me this time. And then the other two boys here are tasked with finding films that respond to that theme and engage with that theme. And when I was thinking about my topic for this week, I was thinking about when the episode was going to come out. And the episode is airing the week before Mother's Day. And whenever Mother's Day is rolling around, I like to have a reminder just so it doesn't slip my mind. I have a good track record. You know, I've never missed Mother's Day. I've never forgotten to get in touch with mom on Mother's Day. But, you know, it's, sometimes it's nice just to have an additional little, you know, whisper in your ear like, hey, hey, call your mom. Just don't let that slip away. And um, so that was my topic this week. It was call your mom. Films that kind of give you that feeling where by the end of it, you know, you feel... You, you feel compelled, the power of cinema is reminding you how important your mother can be in your life and how essential it is that you get in contact with her. And so this week, you both picked films that, that I have seen before, films that I love dearly, both of them. They're both films I am a huge fan of. And I will say, just to get it out of the way, you know, it was a success in the sense that, you know, just before this episode... Gave mom a call. I, I felt compelled. I, I had both of these films sort of floating around in my brain. I was thinking about these scenes, and I was thinking about these moms, and I couldn't help myself. I had to call my mom. So commend you both 
very very well met here on the gauntlet for for your picks. But um, so let's just let's dive into them. They um, have a little bit of a love fest here with these two films. Marsh, why don't you start telling us about the earlier film of the two? Sure. Uh, I guess I took maybe a maybe a slightly unconventional route because of course I picked a film in which uh, a mother does not actually appear. And yet, uh, this was one of the first things that came into my mind, especially because the uh, sort of central relationship uh, presented in this film is between the filmmaker and her mother. And that's a sort of recurring thing throughout her work. Uh, And anyway, I don't know. This film, I love it. You know, I adore it. And I thought it would be an interesting take on this, you know, this topic. And so the film I picked was News from Home by Chantal Ackerman from 1977. And this is a kind of uh, sort of memory piece, I guess, to lay out the concept. So when Chantal Ackerman was 21 years old, she moved from Belgium to New York City in 1971 and lived there for two years Uh which she described as like a vagabond, you know, just kind of bumming around town. And she got involved with Jonas Mikas, an experimental film, and was just, you know, living her early 20s in New York City. And she did that for a couple years, went back to Belgium, made some films, and then decided to go back and make a film about that period in her life. And so this film was shot in 1976 in the spaces and places that she was in New York from 1971 to 73. The film is almost entirely shots of streets and buildings. However, the voiceover written by or read by Ackerman herself are letters that her mother wrote her while she was living in New York City. And so those are read out loud throughout the film over these sort of, you know, New York cityscapes and sort of structuralist film kind of like chunks of the city. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's uh, that's News From Home. Thank you. So News From Home is the kind of film that's sort of a plea. It's like, please call your mother. <laughs> You know, it's a very gentle plea. It's a very sad, like, look at how beautiful mothers are. Please call your mom. Andy, the film you picked is a film that demands you call your mother. It is a, it's a film that says you, you best call your mother or there will be hell to pay. So tell us a little bit about that film. Well, you know, Ryan, you, your whole premise here of, you know, uh, needing a reminder to call your mother on Mother's Day and that that sort of like push. Um, I don't ever because as a true mama's boy, uh, every day is Mother's Day. And and my mom will will usually be the one to call me to let me know that Mother's Day is coming up (laughs) and that I should prepare (laughs) for it. You know, uh, my mom will schedule Mother's Day for us usually. Uh, and, and so, you know, for me, I was like thinking along those lines that, that my mom is a huge presence in my life. And, and I don't mean to put that in an overbearing way, but my mother lives for her children, uh, for her family. And she has always 
lived her life that way. Uh, she is a, a, a great mom. Uh, she loves taking care of us and, and, and running that house. And she's a, a huge, a huge part of, of my existence, not just in the sense that she gave birth to me, but that she is always uh, thinking and, and providing and, and caring. Uh, and, and is in many respects, you know, this, this, this perfect ideal mother, you know, and my mother, uh, in spite of all that is also the biggest fan I know of like murder fiction. Uh, and, and so it was only natural for me to, to, when I think of this, just, you know, this, this Donna Reed incarnate who is fascinated by people killing each other for me to select John Waters, 1994 classic serial mom. Uh, Serial Mom is a, uh, a story of the perfect mother, played by Kathleen Turner. She plays Beverly Sutphin, who seems to have it, it all going for her. She's got the loving husband, who is, like my father, a dentist. Uh, and, and two wonderful, bright children... Uh, she is well liked by uh, her girlfriends around the neighborhood. She can make the perfect meatloaf, which is identical to my mom's meatloaf. <laughs> and like my mom, uh, Beverly is fascinated by serial killers and I guess murder in general. But unlike my mom, uh, John Waters, the, the, the mother in John Waters' film, uh, will act upon those urges as the film develops, as her fascination grows into imitation, and she starts killing people around the town that she lives in who sort of break uh, her, her, her foibles and piss her off, annoy her, uh, commit uh, uh, fashion indiscretions, I guess you could say, break a lot of weird unwritten rules about how to carry yourself in this world. So, yeah, she just starts uh, going ham and, and, and killing a whole heck of a lot of people <laughs> in this movie. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's a super fun movie. I mean, every John Waters movie is... It's dark. It's it's at times very gory. Uh, it is a great satire on suburban living and the idea of the perfect mother. It's it's just it's one of my favorite movies, and and I'm I'm so glad you had this topic just simply so that I could revisit it because it had been a a very long time, and I I I, I look forward to. To diving uh, into uh, every gory detail of this this wonderful <laughs> film. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, I I love my mom, and that was you know I I don't just say that because I know she's likely going to be listening to this episode, but both of these films reminded me of things that I I too love about my mom, and uh, you know my mom also 
not acting on these urges to go around and making the order of the world through murder as Kathleen Turner does. However, she is, you know, she has a particular way of doing things and seeing things um, that she accomplishes through through love. And I guess you could even call some of Kathleen Turner's acts love in this film because oh, she's yeah. typically not only just defending her ideals, which she em- embraces with love, but she's also defending family members and is deeply concerned with how everyone in her family um, is feeling. Yeah, And I mean, at the same time, too, there's also, you know, I, I, I'm not as, as good about just calling people in general. I'm not like a phone guy. And I do. I try to call my mom as much as I can, but I know I can do better, and that's something that I feel so. You know, it hits so hard watching news from home when she's reading these letters that are specifically calling out the fact that Chantel hasn't been writing back. It's the first thing said in every letter, and I don't want to. I don't want to drag my mom here. I want to drag myself because I, you know, especially when I was younger, I was more of a fail son than I am now, you know. And when I first moved to Chicago, you know, after high school and, you know, I was pretty bad about staying in touch, you know. Uh, I was living my life in the city, you know. So I like I very strongly identify uh, with news from home in that regard of being kind of a young, inconsiderate asshole. Uh, Like, I think, Chantel is recognizing, perhaps, that Mm -hmm. she was, you know, at the time, because every one of her mom's letters starts, why don't you write more? Please write more. And it's it's something my mom always does, which is calls me and says, like, why didn't you call me? Why didn't you, you know, like, the first thing. I'm like, don't start the conversation with that, you know? But I get it. Totally justified, you know? So, yeah, that was just making me remember, you know, remember all that. I agree. And I think that, you know, the first time I saw this film as well was a few years ago. um, And it was like pretty soon after after college. I actually may have even watched it in college. So there was like a bit of a reckoning in those final years of it feeling feeling so close to home because I was the age that Chantel was when this film is set, at least. And I was reflecting on my own behaviors. And I, you know, I think it's worth pointing out something that we're very lucky for with this film, just as English speaking people or anyone who doesn't speak French is that we do have subtitles for this movie because one of the other formal tricks that Chantel does in the film is that as the film goes on, the sounds of the city get progressively louder and it becomes harder and harder to hear the recitations of these letters from home. There are a few moments where it does become so loud that we don't even get subtitles, like if a train is coming by. But um, as I understand it, you know, as a as a native French speaker, it's, it is harder to hear the movie than it is for us who are who are reading it. However, I, I think a lot of that is still communicated and that, I mean, now a few years removed, like to me, that is so evocative of how it felt when I was in college and living my, you know, trying to live my life like I'm an adult, I'm independent, like here I go. And it's such an inventive way of communicating that emotion, like not through narrative. It's the, the sound overtaking something that you're straining to listen to with time set aside. Now you're returning to these letters and you're trying to 
to capture something that was lost. And then even now, I mean, this film, returning to it now, was emotionally overwhelming in certain respects because I, I've moved. I, I, I now have actually, I, I've moved across the country. I, I have this geographical space between myself and my mother that Chantel has with her mother in it. Um, I'm glad now that I've, that I both saw this film in college and I'm again revisiting it because it helps put things in perspective and helps remind me of, you know, it is so important to call your mother. But yeah, it was, it was interesting having so much time between viewings of this film and seeing how much something like this, which at first glance may seem very straightforward, shots of the city with narration uh, of letters, um, but how it, it still is, it's such a living object that you react to so much differently as, as time goes on. Yeah, this was my first time seeing uh, News From Home. Oh, wow. So I'd, I had, yeah, I'd previously not not seen it. Um, I mean, I'm very familiar with Chantal and mm-hmm. other films uh, Chantal Ackerman made. But um, this was my first time seeing this. And, and I think like so many other great durational explorations in cinema... And, and Chantal is no stranger to those. Uh, this is, as you put it, Marsh, uh, a, a memory uh, experience. Um, as much as it is Chantal's, it, it encourages us to go into our own. And already, you know, you two have, have shared certain <laughs> certain memories. And, and, and it really hit me as well. Um, uh, not, again, necessarily when I moved to Chicago, because, you know, my mom lives... I see my mom every Sunday. I drive out there for, for dinner every Sunday uh, and, and see her quite often. But but uh, particularly for me, the year when I was living in Scotland, oh, yeah. uh, when I went to, to grad school uh, in, a, in a foreign place, in a totally mm-hmm. different country, and was surrounded by, by expats, you know, from all over the world. I was hanging out with people from, from Pakistan and Greece and Ireland and, and you know, all, all my, my, my flatmate was from Botswana. And so it was really taking me back to that time and a time when, yeah, I, I could only communicate with my mother through phone calls and emails and, and there was a greater distance uh, than ever before. I couldn't just simply go see her in person. And so so it, it took me there and not even just in the sense of, of feeling a greater distance uh, between me and my mother, but also the experience of being a foreigner in a in a totally new place in a totally new city and i think that the construction of this film that you've alluded to uh really for me replicated my experience of that of living in a in mm. a totally foreign place where i didn't know anyone and i i had no idea how the streets worked, how the buses worked, how, you know, public transportation operated. Uh, you know, I, I, I desperately flagged down a cop walking down the street, I think on my second day in the city, because I was horrified in, 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 you know, discovering something about my passport and having to register with the police. And I thought I was, I was wanted. I thought that (laughs) that these cops were going to drag me into jail. You know, I was just so lost. 
And that's what this film really, more than anything, uh, struck me uh, with, was was how in its construction, uh, visually, spatially, it, it sort of represents that journey from when you're first there and you feel very isolated, lonely, and lost, and the familiarity that grows mm. with that space the longer time you spend with it. Uh, and so, you know, I was really blown away. Aside from, yeah, making me think about my mom, it, it also just, I think, is a, is a, is a brilliant film in uh, showing us that kind of journey, the, the expat's journey, the, the immigrant's journey, uh, a stranger's journey uh, in a city. Right. And I think that maybe you've answered this question with what you just said, but I guess it's interesting then to return to the question like Jeopardy here in thinking, you know, when I was watching the film this time, something I was wondering was who or what is the camera in this movie? Like, who is this perspective? At times, you know, I, it's not a question I typically ask, but while I was watching this film... And there are moments, let's say, with public transportation. There's an extremely extended shot of the subway and watching the trains go by. I couldn't help but think, are we, is this camera the perspective of Chantal sitting here watching trains go by? Or is this not supposed to be literally the perspective of a person, but more a glimpse into memory, if that makes any sense, if those aren't entirely contradictory. I guess it's, but I think what you're saying in terms of the way your familiarity grows with a foreign space, both with how the camera is capturing these things as isolating moments, but then having the soundscape become more dense and also more camera movement in general, like the camera being in a car and moving more confidently through the city, you know? And people. And people. I mean, the the at the beginning, like so many of the the shots are are like the streets are empty, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's it's either really early in the morning or, you know, it's like magic hour and the people are small. The people are small. The streets are 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 very uh, empty. With all those other things that you described, Ryan, it's also that, like, as as the film progresses, you know, it becomes less lonely, uh, and and suddenly you're you're surrounded, and and maybe that's the paradox of the city because later on, then it it's you're you're not necessarily as alone but you're you're sort of like suffocated almost at times right. by the amount of people that are occupying the these spaces and and so yeah for me i guess it, to answer your question um from my own perspective i, I kind of feel like it it's it's not that the the camera is like a a a person. It's just that again, in in my perspective of thinking at it like like a memory project, mm-hmm. you know, it's like when I close my eyes and I just suddenly like try to picture the street that I lived on in Edinburgh, you know, and what mm. what the what it looked like to just be standing out there and looking at the building, or what did you know what did uh, Milne's Square look like, you know, what was what was like the 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 high road at five p.m., you know, how did it look so. So it, it, for me, it's just like that idea of just trying to have like a a a a sort of memory snapshot uh, of of a space that that Chantal 
in this case, occupied or a, a person would have occupied, you know? And I think that fits with like what I sort of identify as kind of, you know, the major, one of the major visual motifs of the film is simply presence and absence. And that's part of the durational quality. For instance, the subway shot that you mentioned, Ryan, is one of the longest shots in the movie. And we see people waiting for their train. We see trains come and pick people up, so on and so forth for like a very long time. And sometimes, or at least once, there's no one in the shot. Mm -hmm. It's just an empty, you know, subway platform. And she does that several times with stairs, you know, all this activity, all this bustling, and then a moment where everything is just empty. And she's constantly playing with that idea. And I, I was really feeling it that, yeah, playing into what you're talking about, Andy, these ideas of loneliness, isolation, and then, right, what could even be described as confrontational when she starts setting up the camera in the middle of the subway cars. I mean, people are looking at the camera. They're right. looking at her. There's a guy in, in that really long, uh, long take in the subway who is just staring her down the whole time, this guy on the left side of the frame. He's got, like, the green pants on? or maybe oh, that, like the... Yeah, well, that guy <laughs> there's a There's a couple guys, yeah, that really give her a good stare down. But yeah, it mm -hmm. becomes you be, you come face to face with New York. You know, you're not mm -hmm. shooting from the top of a building, look at the street, watch this person, you know, like an ant walk down the street or whatever. It's up close and personal. Yeah, and we even then, you know, that is reinforced in many of the letters um, that, you know, what we pick up from in this case, like Chantal's journey, the, the, the unseen Chantal in this city is, is I think, those same kinds of uh, ups and downs, that sort of roller coaster of emotions that can come from, as you described in your intro, Mar, sort of like a vagabond lifestyle where, you know, suddenly she's got a good place to crash and, and she, maybe she's seeing someone and that's going well. And then the next week she's out looking for another place to live. And, and now nah, I don't talk to that person anymore. It kind of, you know, it ended all Doris Wishman, bad yeah. girls go to hell. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and this won't be the only time we reference yeah, right. Doris Wishman uh, yeah. on this episode. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, you know, that, that, that same kind of experience that you can kind of read between the lines. And, and then also like the, the experiences of, of, of her mother in these letters that, that, you know, there's good days and there's bad days, you know. Sometimes business is going well. Sometimes a guy's defaulting on three hundred thousand francs uh, that, that that he owes you, you know. And and yeah, that's that's life, and that's that's our our, our journey, you know. And it's it's not a very predictable arc of of just simply like rising and falling action. It's it's you know every day has its as its climaxes and, and dramas and twists and turns. And, and I think this film, in its poetic way, is really capturing that sense of, of the, the human experience in the city and, and over great distances between people who, who love each other very much. 
peur que la crise s'éclate. Fort étonné que cette semaine, je n'ai pas reçu de tes nouvelles. La semaine dernière, j'avais trois lettres et cette semaine, rien du tout. Tant qu'on écrit en vite, car je suis très intéressé par toi. J'espère que tu n'as pas reçu mes lettres ou que je va directement après avoir reçu tes lettres. Seulement une fois, tu as écrit New York 2025 et une autre fois 2027 sur l'enveloppe. Écris-moi l'adresse exacte. Chez nous, rien de spécial. Pour les vacances, on partira seulement les week-ends à la mer. Nous n'allons pas à l'étranger cette année, c'est pas le moment. J'espère que c'est passager parce que tu sais que chez nous, nous ne pouvons pas rester sans travail. En attendant, nous travaillons déjà pour l'hiver. Il y a aussi l'adresse d'une cousine de Marie. Son fils étudie la médecine. Il a dit que tu peux aller dire bonjour à ses parents qui habitent dans le bronze, à qui il a écrit car ils connaissent un type qui est dans le cinéma, mais on ne sait jamais. Enfin, ma chérie, je compte sur toi pour écrire. Ne te fatigue pas déjà à écrire vite. Je t'embrasse mille et mille fois et pense à toi. I completely agree. I think that relating back to some of the other things we had brought up and thinking about the content of these letters and you mentioning the 300,000 franc debt, you know, there's something so perfect, I guess, about this film and the, the gap in time that gives it all of this power, that this was her returning to these spaces returning to these letters and revisiting them and finding new meaning in them. And it made me think about when I was going to school, trying to carve out a path of my own in college, and you had mentioning, Marsh, your mother starting a phone call with, why haven't you been calling me? And at the time, that is frustrating. And sometimes hearing these, you know, hearing the details of life in such rich detail, right, uh, like these things that are happening back home, can become, you know, when you're young and you're in a new place, you're thinking like, I, you know, I don't want to hear this. Like, this, this, this doesn't affect my immediate reality. You become selfish. You become trapped in like your vision of the world. And you're like, here I go. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm me now, you know, like only, the only thing that matters here is like what, what I'm working on. But then that gap in time and having her return to these letters. And when you, when you realize they're starting with, you know, please, why aren't you writing more? And then she follows it up with such things as like, oh, did you get the $20 I sent you? Or like, I am just so happy that you have found new friends. You realize that it's all just, it's just giving, you know, that's in these letters. It's just love and giving and like everything Chantel's mom's saying. And even sharing those little details of day-to-day life, it's just trying to share her reality with her. It's trying to bridge this distance. This well, film. Can I interject? Sure. <laughs> There's some salacious details too. And if I make uh, connect the films, <laughs> you know, I like that there's a gossipy element to yeah. her mom's letters oh, yeah. that I think resonated mm-hmm. with Serial Mom, you know? Sure. Because there are these just fragments of who's getting divorced, who's having money trouble, who in mm-hmm. the family is doing this, who in the family yeah. is doing that. They're just like snuck in there. Yeah, what's up with Sylvian? You know, there was a little sounded like a little drama about the birthday. You know, oh yeah, yeah. There was like this time around, I was having a little bit of an easier time piecing together the narrative of the mother's world. You know, Marsh and I were doing a little bit of research when we were watching it, trying to figure out. Like, okay, so which one's her sister? Who are cousins? You know, who who are who are these network of people? We didn't come up with too much, but at the same time, it was. Um, Sylvian was is Chantel's sister. Yeah, that that much we we gleaned. But yeah, there's lots of stuff about different parties and and things like that mm-hmm. with the aunts. And Dad's health. Dad's health. All damn day. Yeah. 
Oh, geez, Louise. Well, you know, it's it's uh, it's interesting bringing that up, you know. And again, for me, like going back into uh, a you know a similar experience that I had as uh, you know a, a film student in 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 grad school in a foreign country and and things like that coming uh, you know at such a great distance. Uh, while I was in Edinburgh. Uh, my grandmother, my father's mother, died. And so I had been kind of following that, you know, getting bits and pieces from my mother about, well, you know, grandma's sick. Now she's taking a turn for the worse. Now she's in the hospital. And I will never forget the day that my mother told me over Skype, you know, that that my, my grandmother died when I was just, you know, alone. Like I have no friends. No one knows me. No one knows my family really. You know, I mean, I had friends at the time there, but you know, they don't, they, they can't, they, they can't picture any of these people, you know, and, and, and you share that with someone and they're just, you know, like, of course, like, oh my God, I'm sorry. You know, they get what that that's like. But, mm -hmm. but the minute my mother told me, and then, you know, we sort of got off the Skype call. I was just sitting there and I, I'd never, felt so alone before, you know, like experiencing a loss at such a great distance delivered, you know, in a very, you know, weird virtual kind of way. And, and then looking out my window and going like, no one in this city <laughs> knows me, you know, like no one knows what I'm what I'm the sadness that I'm I'm really experiencing right now. You know, no one knows any of the people that I know here. And and yeah, it was also just kind of funny how my mom told me. It was like in my memory, I remember it like that we had a a long talk just about like, yeah, gossip and life and, and stuff like that. And then at the very end of the call, my mom was like, Oh, grandma died, by the way, you know, and I was just like, Oh, uh, 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 sh should I fly home? And she was like, No, no, that's all right. Just you don't you shouldn't fly home. Just stay there. And I was like, uh Okay, my, my God, you know. Well, anyway, I got to get back to work. Bye. Like that's in my memory how it sure. went down. Oh my God, I don't think it went that way. You know, <laughs> like it, it couldn't have gone that way. My mom is is not that 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 cold, you know. But but I think it's just replicated by the fact that like I felt just like you know nothing around me. I felt I felt completely hollow by being in a a foreign city. Like nothing was familiar. I had to think about everywhere I was going and what I was doing. There was nothing familiar really about the space that I was in. And I think that's kind of to the point, Ryan, that, that you sort of brought up that it's like, what do you even do with some of this information when you are so many miles away? There's nothing I can do. I can't, I can't hug my mother. I can't hug my father. I can't go to the funeral. You know, you just mm -hmm. kind of like, you hear these things, you know, dad's health, you know, well, what do you want me to do about it? I'm in fucking New York, you know, or whatever. Like, uh, I, I, the birthday sounds cool, I guess, you know? And I, I think you get a bit of that even in these letters, you know, that, that sort of like frustration of, of, of wanting someone to be there, wishing they could be there, but they can't. And, and you have your own things, you know, in those letters and, and in the pleas by her mother to check in. I also, again, reading between the lines, I can see, the struggles of Chantal Ackerman, where Chantal is like, 
that's all well and good. And I'm sorry to hear that, but I've got no place to live right now. And I'm desperately trying to find uh, accommodations. And like that fucking 20 bucks is the difference perhaps between me eating or, or, or going without food for several days. And like the 20 bucks, the 20 bucks, the 20 bucks takes such uh, prominence in these letters and, and for someone who went through a similar situation, you know, I, I, I couldn't work over there. I didn't have a job over there and, and I would rely on those little bits here and there. Like, could you just deposit 60 pounds in my account? Cause like, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of out of food right now or whatever. And, and I think it's, it's not uncommon to me. You know, I think it's, again, it's, it's this very human experience for, for people being at a distance and, and, and trying to, 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 to just simply exist in this world and, and relying on the, the giving and the charity and the love of people who are sometimes like at a great distance from you. And on the other hand, you know, uh, all Chantal's mom wants is a picture of her. That's another like yeah, main, like sure. really dramatic sort of like several letter spanning narrative of like, please send me a picture of you, you know? And it's like, yeah, you're a filmmaker. Like, send your goddamn mom a picture, you know? And she eventually does, you know? And that when that happens in the letter, she's like, so happy. Thank you. You Mm -hmm. know, your hair is so long. It looks great. Yeah, the amount of attention that her mother, like, doles out on on that image, you know, her, her, like, studying that image, you can tell it just meant the world to her. And even then, too, with the $20, thinking about it, it is often Chantel's mother bringing up the fact and stressing over, like, Chantal, you haven't acknowledged whether you got the money. You know, like, yeah. I sent you this $20, and I know it's important, but, like, you got to tell me if you got it. Because it, the mother isn't mad that she had to send money, but she is, like, upset not knowing whether it had its intended effect There's or if it got to her. too many addresses being thrown around. I know. Yeah, yeah so she gets mm-hmm. paranoid, and I, I know that, you know, like, I, it's like, that was something that I, I could not relate to when I was younger, the... The paranoia that I could tell that my parents would feel at times and, you know, just like them wanting to make sure I was okay and that I was safe and everything like that. And, you know, you're young. You're like, I'm fine. But like, you oh, know, yeah. you, you feel it. I also think that it's funny bringing up the father's health that that's like a change in strategy for the Chantel's mom. I like how she, you can see how she keeps coming up with new ways to connect with her by suggesting like, oh, it's not just me. Like, you know, your your letter, it really cheered dad up. And dad's feeling much better now. So I suggest you keep doing this to take care mm-hmm. of your father. Yeah, There's one bit where it's like, dad has been going around telling everyone you're going to be a famous filmmaker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. It's true. Yeah. Oh yeah. And and you know, it's it in that sense, uh thinking about it in those terms, you know, and and the the importance of this this one picture, you know, and 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 it took so long for it to arrive. Uh it's it, you know, when you watch films like this from the past, they have this tremendous all films do, you know, an anthropological sort of value as yeah. well and this totally different experience for anyone today like even for me describing you know when I was in Edinburgh like I had Skype you know <laughs> like yeah. you need a picture of me like 
bam, here's one over the phone. I texted to you or whatever, you know, but that there's such a gap at times between their communication and, and the, just the very fact that, you know, her mom wants a picture and she's like, well, that means I got to take one. I got to go get it processed. I got to, right. you know, yeah, I got yeah. I got to do all this stuff. I got to pay for film. And, and yeah, it's just, you know, we are so much more connected, right, Di- in the digital age to to one another, you know, the joke being like, here, you want one picture? I just took a hundred in, in five minutes, here you go, or whatever. And yet, in spite of the fact that communication is so much easier and, and, and so much more, quote, effortless, it's it's again our ultimate irony today of of you know something that you both brought up at the very beginning that we have all the means to to be connected instantaneously with with whomever we don't have to write a letter and wait for it to get from new york to fucking belgium or whatever and and man here we are in this movie being reminded like oh yeah shit it's so much easier for me to do this, to, to, to find out about dad's house. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I, should, I should be doing it so much more. I was thinking know? the exact same thing. And it, the movie rema- made me think of the Norm Macdonald joke where grandparents from the early 1900s only have a single photograph of them. But now yeah. you have a, a thousand photographs of uh, everything grandpa's done every single day for the last six years, you know. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, that that disconnect is felt while watching News from Home with 2022 vision. Yeah. And then even then, right, the idea of that picture, because like that one picture, that picture for Chantal must have been like such a big deal. And for her mother, that's like a sacred icon. And now, you know, like somebody sends you a picture, you're just like, great, big whoop. You know, it's yeah. like <laughs> photographs fell off. dude. <laughs> yeah, because, because of the proliferation. Right. Yeah. And. and and there's just no, it doesn't hold that same kind of like emblematic weight, you know? And, and, and so it's beautiful to watch this film to, yeah, like remind us of those things, you know? Like, yeah, it's a great memory project for, for us to think about Chantal and her mother. But, but again, also for us to reflect upon not just 77 when this film came out or 71 when she was living in New York, but also in fucking 2022 when when we are here in our time, in our space, experiencing this. I guess thinking about the emblematic power of images, were there any particular shots in this film that really registered strongly with you? Do you have like a favorite image from the film? I do. And I'm glad you brought it up because I think, you know, Uh, Another aspect of this film, which I suppose is obvious from its description, is, like Andy said, a sort of anthropological kind of value or just, you know, looking at when New York was cool, right? Uh, And that's in, you know, New York early 70s is like this decaying metropolis, you Mm -hmm. know, it's like... We all love taking of Pelham, you know? We're, we're all, and here we are again, you know? Yeah. We're in Manhattan, graffiti everywhere. Uh, and I think, you know, to to that, you know what else fell off besides photographs? Colors, okay? Because it was during my favorite shot, which is the uh, out-of-the-car window, sort of like side-scrolling tracking shot that goes on for quite a long time. 
it was during that shot that I, I realized there was a conspiracy of colors going on back then. <laughs> because, like, and I don't know if this is just she shot a lot of footage and is, is a genius and found all this, but, like, there's red and blue predominantly cars, objects. It's so prevalent that it seems fake. It seems, like, designed like a Hollywood film. The way that, like, everything's coordinated. And then there's yellow because there's taxis everywhere, and that's like a minor color, and this is like consistent. And then during this tracking shot that's going on forever, it's like red car passing by, blue van passing by, red car passing by, and I'm like, is this a fucking joke, you know? Like, who's driving these cars, you know? (laughs) Totally, yeah, there's a moment in that shot where she passes by two red vans that are parked like not like two blocks from each other yeah and they look very similar i mean maybe they work for the same place but it's true they they i i felt that while watching that sequence if it was if it was abbas kirostami you know uh <laughs> that would have been set up yeah that's like, right you would have found that out later set up. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 um but yeah, mine I would have to say uh, is uh, there's this beautiful, beautiful shot of uh, a, a street, and we're sort of just looking down this this sort of uh, long street that almost seems to be on a slight uh, a hill, like going upwards, and uh, her camera is is just slightly off to the side on the street and you see a long row of parked cars and in the middle of the street we have uh, several uh, boys playing stickball yeah that that is my favorite shot it's beautiful because uh, number one watching that 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 dude like try to hit that ball with the stick I was I was thinking Oh man, stickball is fucking hard. <laughs> I was like, you gotta hit that ball with that stick. And then I was thinking of like Vlad Guerrero, and that's what made him such a good hitter. They said was he grew up playing stickball. Right. So if you can hit that, baseball's a cinch. You know? Exactly, you know. And I was like, that's what made him the greatest drunk ball hitter of all time. But but again, like memory project, right? But aside from that, at the at the, at the tail end of the shot, there's just a beautiful moment where. You know, her camera's looking down the street, you know, behind the batter. And suddenly off the distance, we see like the outfielder and the pitcher. And they just slowly start to move over to the side very casually. And then the batter does. And you're sort of like, what's going on? And then from behind the camera, here comes a car. And it just starts going off down the street. You know, game on, game off. You know, the classic uh, kids playing in a street. I, I thought that was just... It was beautiful. It was beautiful. Yeah, you could feel like the warmth of the pavement in that shot, you know, that summertime feeling. Yeah, I mean, those are two of the best ones in the film. I guess, you know, another one I just can't help but bring up is the final shot is is so incredible on a cloudy day. CGI. Yeah, it almost yeah, it almost looks like CGI. It's too perfect, but this this image taken from a boat of just I think it's the Staten Island ferry. Ah, okay, that would make sense. But moving away from the city, very, very steadily. I mean, that shot has to be almost ten minutes long, maybe like seven or eight. And we've got it's one. A we've got like a seagull flying along in pace with us. 
And that 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 shot particularly um, reminded me of Terrence Malick's "The Thin Red Line" and the closing shot of that, oh. which is it's like it's almost an identical shot. It's from like a troop transport as it's leaving the island, right. you know, where the Battle of Guadalcanal took place. And you know, in a similar way, uh, you know, Malick's film is about like time, space, and memory and our experiences of being thrust into a strange land that seems uh, very hostile to us and, and how we just sort of survive and we we grow more comfortable there in, in spite of, you know, how lonely at times that experience could be. Like, it, in that moment, I was just like, just thinking about also the Thin Red Line. I was like, oh my God, like, Malik. Of course, you know he's he's gotta be a, a Chantal Ackerman fan, and oh, yeah. like I'm like he stole her shot, like he stole her <laughs> shot, I'm like because it's the exact same shot of the island, like gradually getting smaller and smaller as we we pull away from it, and and we also then get more more context for for the size of this place because again you're inside, yeah, yes, we're we're just thrust in there in this in this very very disorienting way in these spaces. And as the film, you know, develops, as we discussed, we, we become more acclimated, more, more familiar with our surroundings. Certain shots even repeat in certain locations. Yeah. You know, it's like we've, we've revisited, you know, there's this one street that has this neon sign that says Kashmir on it. And, and we go back there at several times Throughout a day, you know, we see it in the morning, we see the neon prominently lit up, we see it at night, we see it when the sign's been turned off, you know, in the in the early hours. Uh, and, you know, yes, we, we get more comfortable with the city, but we're still inside it, you know. And then in that final shot, after all this, and, and perhaps in her journey when one day she finally had to leave you pull away from it and you sort of look at it and and you are now taking in the city as a whole, you know. This was an experience I had and this was the place where it happened. Not just on this particular street or on on, on that specific subway line, but, but in, like, New York City, you know? And already a fading memory and, you know, receding memory, right? Exactly. Totally. I do really like as well uh, all the little donut shops in the subway. Yeah. And that. There's like a, like an almost 360 degree pan at some point, And it just keeps revealing little shops of like, I was like, I want that. You know? There was a little like, I don't know if it was necessarily Kodak, but there was like a camera shop. Yeah. Uh, in the subway. In the subway, yeah. I wonder if that's where she got her photo taken care of before Ooh, she sent it to her mother. I like that. And you know, <laughs> speaking of of shots that, that really stood out to us that we really like, you know, Ryan, revisiting your question from earlier about like, well, you know, who is the camera? I, I'm now also kind of like, well, but it is also... It is also Chantal because there is that amazing shot on one of the subway cars where we, you, you know, if you're not looking closely, you might miss it. But we see her and the camera and, and who's ever operating it. I think there's there's another person with her reflected in one of the windows mm-hmm. of the subway, like filming it. So so we do get to see uh, at least who's behind uh, this camera. So, yeah, I guess it is also just Chantal. It is just her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that is a really nice touch when we do get to see that because it's clearly intentional 
right? I mean, it's a film that's quite precise, and she, if she didn't want that in there, she wouldn't have left it in. She she provided that for us, and that's and you know that's Babette Mangolte, her like her cinematographer that she met in New York, and then who shot John Dielman. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's in that sense, you know, you just read it as you know that's that's their ghosts haunting sure. this place, <laughs> you know, this sort of like translucent reflection of them haunting all the old spaces that they used to live in. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Did you guys catch that uh, in one of the letters uh, that her mom sends, someone gets their teeth pulled? Yes, I don't remember the context, but yeah. Great. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just thinking of you know, more, <laughs> what's just thinking of more connections to sure. uh, you know oh. the wacky world of dentistry and serial mom Ryan. Right. Okay. I didn't. My brain didn't make that synaptic connection there. I see. Very good. Mm-hmm. This film for me, like again, being my first time seeing it and like sort of knowing what I know about about Chantal and her relationship with her mother. And yes, that. I mean, it's just. Yeah, it hit it hit so much harder, you know, that that I don't think I've I've ever seen a a more uh powerful love letter to one's mother uh in cinema. I, I, I don't think I have, you know, because Obviously, the sort of like Bazinian <laughs> realism of like the letters, like, these were the actual letters and, you know, um, the spaces and all this stuff. I mean, it's 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 incredible. It's 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 really a, a, an overwhelming uh, film for for I think me on my first time seeing it. You know, I was just incredibly moved in 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 seeing someone really 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 just say i love you mom you know for for 90 minutes yeah. uh in in such an intelligent and and thoughtful way right and i mean i don't i wouldn't want to simplify this film by calling it an apology but it is one of the most beautiful ways of sort of speaking to your mother and saying you know listen time has passed i understand i i could have written more but i want mm-hmm. you to know that what you wrote did mean something to me, even if I wasn't expressing that at the time. I do see the value in what you've brought to my life. And I think that that's one of the things that this film achieves with such grace that, yeah, I mean, it just makes it one of the most beautiful films ever made, honestly. Yeah. And 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 really, again, I think that's kind of the experience, like why, why I also, you know, consider this one of the great humanistic works Mm -hmm. I've seen because it's such an affirmation of that development of, I think, a lot of people's, I mean, and I don't want to generalize, but I can also just say specifically to be safe, I guess, because I know some people hate their mom, (laughs) but, you know, for me, that, that development from, you know, as you're, as you're young, you know, your parents, you kind of have these phases with them where at times they just, they're like, they're just authoritarians or they're just, you know, they're just people who nag me all the time. And then, you know, when you're young, you're kind of just like, oh, when you're 20, it's like, boy, I, I could really use to get away from my parents right now. And you go through that phase where, where that distance helps you, you know, build your own sense of of independence and, and, and self-value outside of your parents' orbit. But, but then as you go past that, you know, from like your 20s to your 30s, where suddenly your parents are like, now just like, 
friends, you know, like you're just, they're like, they're just good friends. Mm -hmm. And, and, and the more time you spend, the, the older you grow, I think the, the more for me anyway, I just am like, man, like these, these are some of my best fucking friends. And, and, and I really just appreciate that as well. And I think you can kind of see some of that, Ryan, in, in what you're, you, what you're sort of describing mm -hmm. that, that just, that growth and maturation in your relationship from like, man, yeah, I, I guess I was kind of distant there. And like, you really did just care about me, you know? And funny enough, I think that that's in a way explored with both of the children in John Waters' film, Serial Mom. Oh, yeah. Where we have, you know, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, we do have the daughter who, upon learning that her mother, Kathleen Turner, is, you know, been going around killing a lot of folks, she's, you know, she's a little resistant to that. And she finds herself growing distant from her mother, apart from, you know, multiple other factors, while her son, played by Matthew Lillard, a uh, like a video store horror hound junkie, you know, <laughs> he finds new connection there with his mother, and he finds his relationship with his mother growing and sees her, you know, in her new living her truth life. He finds her to be a new friend, I think. He sees her differently. Um, and there's, yeah. there's a bit of growth with both of them in certain respects. Yeah. I, I, I watched John Waters in another interview uh, talking about how, you know, in for him, like, he's like, you know, in a sense, for, 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 for this family, like, going through this experience, it, it actually, like, it improves all of their lives. Yeah, it united them, <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, he even points out how the husband, you know, for him, you know, because John Waters, this was a, a very important issue to him, you know, if you notice that, that when, you know, his wife is on trial, you know, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, as, as his wife is being tried for all these murders, Sam Waters who plays her husband, uh, he shows up to to the, the the court proceedings with a big button on his lapel that says, you know, no gas chamber, you yeah. know, and he wants to now he's coming out and, 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 and wants to abolish capital punishment. And for John Waters, he's like, like he grows too, you know, he learns that capital punishment is a very, very bad thing. So, so it, for Waters, he's like, everybody learns in this, you know, everybody grows because of this killing spree. It's one of, it's one of the first things that the father says in the film when is, what crime is he hearing about? Is it the murder of the teacher when he says, I hope, they get the death yeah. penalty. Police claim the driver of the hit and run vehicle ran down the Hello? Did you hear? What happened? This is so cool. It's just like a horror movie. It's on. I'll call you back. Okay, bye. Mr. Paul Stubbins was 38 years old. Whoever did this should get the death penalty. He says it several times, though. Like, throughout yeah. the film, it's like a joke. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's even in the hilarious sermon in the church <laughs> right. when they go to church. Yeah. Uh, I think like the 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 thing on like you know outside the church says like the capital punishment. It says like capital punishment and you right. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. like and and that amazing sermon that is one hundred percent like John Waters. You know, yeah, having a laugh and like yeah, Waters was a guy. I mean, he. I'm sure you both know. Like. I mean, that dude would, he taught in prisons. Like he, he spent a lot of time like working with people in prison and developing relationship with prisoners uh, and, and, and speaking out against the death penalty. So, you know, in his own kind of, 
you know, very darkly comic way. This is him interjecting his his views on that, you know, and and presenting us this this weird, you know, uh, sort of riff on like the perfect family in a 1950s sitcom, teaching us all that that capital punishment is a is a is a dumb thing. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's funny how you know you'll never mistake a Chantel Ackerman film for anything else right when you when you encounter it and it's the same thing with john waters everything he directed is just so immediately clear that you're watching a john waters film even when he has a budget like he does here when this is like a more it's not like a grungy 16 millimeter you know fringe type film this is one that's heavily produced it's got a-list celebrities in it um and yet it's just you can honest. I feel like this is the case with every John Waters film, but watching his films, I can imagine him saying every single line of dialogue. If you like, want to read the film that way, like oh, yeah. I could imagine John Waters easily dubbing every single character in the film, and it would still be fine. Like, and it would be funny, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And it was nice just having this film reinforced in my mind because I had so much fun when I saw it the first time, which was a few years ago at the Music Box um, at like a late night screening. And I've always had a really high opinion of it. And seeing it again, it's nice because this doesn't always happen with comedies. But I was, I think almost every line in this movie is funny. I think it's just like moment after moment. It's so clever. It's so sharp. It's so biting. Oh, yeah. For a target that is rather easy, right? You know, white suburbia. It's, it's an easy thing to mock. But the way he does it is just so specific to him with so much personality. Um, and it's just, yeah, it makes the film live on, I think. Yeah, it's full of his, you know, his opinions and his ideas about the world. And and if you like that world, as I think we all love, you know, (laughs) the John Waters universe, I mean, this is a film that implicates uh, people... Uh, you know, people that watch family films are the real sickos, you know, that's like yeah. one of the because there's like a whole media kind of like thesis going on celebrity worship that he's dealing with. I mean, I was even thinking I called this out during the movie to Ryan. Uh, this film, you know, basically you know, did everything that Scream did, uh, but two years earlier, including having Matthew Lillard love movies, um, mm-hmm. which is interesting. But yeah, it is, you know, it is jamming on all the ideas uh, of, you know, a lot of what people were thinking about in the 90s. And I don't know if this was an accident, but in the video store, there's a To Die For 2 Right in the frame, you know, uh, thinking of other sort of movies, you know, yeah. movies about the media or whatever. <laughs> right. So uh, there's that element as well. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like to that to that end, Marsh, as much as this is uh, very much, uh, you know, a placeholder for a very specific point in time, you know, 1994, uh, you know, Clinton's America. It, it's weird how much of this film is is almost like to your point Ryan even to me more funny today like seeing where we are now i mean he said that the inspiration for this like the the, the real like starting point for him was he was like man people are so obsessed with like 
true crime stories, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, think about fucking Netflix and all this <laughs> shit right now, you know? And he's just like, he's like, people are fucking weird that they're just so obsessed with true crime and serial killers and murder shit. And he's like, me too. I mean, he's, he's often talked about his like weird obsession with like court TV. And like, he even had his own court TV show for a little while where, you know, he just was like, he wanted to be on court TV because he loved that shit so much. So he says, you know, I'm even recognize I'm even reckoning with that in myself. So like, there's that aspect where, where that kind of, that satirical commentary on like, you know, what we've referenced on this pod before that, that Rosenbaum was like, man, there's a bunch of fucking sickos. And Rosenbaum wrote that almost at the same time, right? Because that was his review for Silence of the Lambs. Yep. And, and, you know, which, which, uh, is very well connected to this. I mean, he was, uh, Waters was tight with Jonathan Demme and like he, a big fan of that movie. But but even, you know, little things. Again, I saw uh, a, this great intro that Waters gave for this film in 2015. It's on YouTube, you know, you can go watch it. Where he was even pointing out little shit where he was just like, man, now, you know, he's like, I didn't even think about this. Waters was saying, but he's like, somebody pointed this out to me that one of the funniest lines in the movie now is when this little old lady, like, I think in the video store is just kind of like, haven't you had enough violence, Chip Sutton? Turn that filth off. Sorry, ma'am. Do you have the musical, Annie? Sure do. Did you bring back Ghost Dad? There you go. I just love Bill Cosby pictures. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and Waters is like, holy shit, look where we are now, like, with Bill Cosby. Yeah. Skewered him. Right, of course, Marsh. Again, to your point, like, the real sickos are the people who yeah. love the Bill Cosby films and saw him as the greatest dad in America, you know, America's dad or whatever they said. And that's, again, ultimately his big point is just that, like, you know, those people who who stand up and moralize and point to look at this great upstanding citizen. It's usually that person that has the real like demons inside them, you know, that yeah. they're that they're trying to hide from all of us. Yeah, the biggest heel of the movie is the woman that rents Annie, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. I think that image in particular The cinema disrespecter, the woman who won't rewind. <laughs> yeah, I think that particular image, the woman singing the sun'll come out tomorrow at the top of her lungs while she forces her dog to like her bare feet. Um, Get them good and wet. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> like mommy's feet. Get them all wet. And the sorrow. So there's To me, like that is John Waters, like perfectly capturing the Marvel movie fan and like the mm-hmm. Disney freaks of today. Like that 100%. is such a prescient gag. Yes. 100%. I thought the exact same fucking thing, Ryan. I wrote like Disney Plus fucks. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. I mean, and again, that's where that's where for me, like it, it, on, a, on a, like the other side of the coin from Chantal Ackerman, like Waters for me has always been a great 
a, a great, like a towering humanist because his whole project is built around this idea of saying like, you know, all you people love to point fingers and call people freaks. We're all freaks. Let's all acknowledge that we're all weird and strange and flawed and twisted. And it's beautiful. Like that's what's so beautiful about us is that we we can like sit there and, and belt out Annie and have our toes <laughs> licked by our dog. So like don't be casting, you know, don't be casting stones into my house. Don't be talking you know? shit about Herschel Gordon Lewis movies, lady. All yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah, exactly. And again, like in that trial, and you know, we're like just jumping in the trial, but like in that trial, there's the the whole thing with the the cop, you know, and, and the cop who's trying to, to say like, yeah, you know, you're a fucking vicious murderer. And like, we found all these books that you read in your trash. You know, we found these serial killer books. You've been reading Helter Skelter and all this stuff. Look, you're really a, a that really means you're a murderer if this is what you're reading. And she points out, hey, you know what we found in your trash because she's friendly with the garbage men. Right. So she had the garbage men go through the cop's trash and there was a copy of chicks with dicks. And he, so she's like, so what does this make you then? You know, it's like you either have to admit that that you're hiding who you actually are or no, 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 no. It, it, that, that's not who I am. You know, it's like you get caught in that in that that trap uh, that Waters loves to set in his films to specifically those traps for yeah the 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 Disney heads the the Annie freaks <laughs> I do love when Kathleen Turner is going to kill that Annie freak the one who's like singing getting her toes licked that initially she thinks she's going to use a big knife uh, like a kitchen knife but that that it's like not quite good enough for this for this Disney freak so she grabs like a hunk of meat and just yeah pummels her with that which i think is a nice touch as well which is uh for waters it's uh he is um 100 i'm i guarantee this you know because he's definitely a big hitchcock fan uh and this is in a certain respect to me his like most hitchcockian film uh in its construction and and again like hitchcock who loved playing with you know murder in the suburbs and small town america and you know i was thinking a lot of like shadow of a doubt you know the the two old men in shadow of a doubt oh, who yeah. you know after like working at the bank sit around and just talk about how they'd murder each other and get away with it you know those guys i love those guys and like waters loves those guys too you know and that's that's exactly what he's playing with here but that murder weapon the choice of the murder weapon is from an episode of alfred hitchcock presents and and it's not like listed anywhere you can't find this but i only remember because i know the episode it stuck with me uh from when i saw it as a child uh on like you know nick at night when they would play alfred hitchcock presents there's an episode of that where a a woman, I believe it's a woman, murders her husband with a hunk of frozen meat like that. And then she roasts it and she's cooking it. And the cops are there and they're eating, she's serving them the meat and they're eating it. And the cops are like, you know, we can't find that murder weapon anywhere. It could be right in front of us and we just wouldn't know it. And they're eating the murder Couple weapon. Couple of Hoke Mosleys. Yeah. Right, yeah, exactly, dude. <laughs> yeah, 100%. A couple of real hoax right there. And and you see that as well in here where the dog is is eating the murder weapon. So it's, it's, it's gone, you know, and that's, I really do think him referencing that episode for sure. I could see it, yeah. 
I want to get us maybe some somewhere towards the beginning of the film <laughs> by yeah. saying that, you know, the first thing that really struck me upon uh, revisiting it this time is just how great it looks. It's like just this total 90s pop Hollywood look. And I was like, I love this look. I know this look, you know, who do, whose look is this? And I, I had to look it up. And the film was shot by Robert M. Stevens, who shot some of my favorite movies from my childhood, specifically Naked Gun 1, 2, and, of course, my favorite, 33 and a Third with Fred Ward, one of my all-time favorites. Uh, And he shot The Burbs as well. So you get that vibe, you know, like... Bringing the guy, this guy to shoot the suburbs, high key comedy lighting, you know, bright, colorful costumes. I mean, I also thought of Cirque, you know, I guess that's obvious, but yeah. I do think in many ways she's like, a, you know, a Cirque protagonist who, uh, you know, actually started killing someone or a, or a Cirque side character, you know, one of the gossip hounds in all that heaven mm-hmm. allows, you know, that goes on a, a killing spree, you know? Yeah. It's kind of like uh, if you smash together like Cirque and Hitchcock, <laughs> totally. you know, that's, that's, a, that's actually a good way I think of, of kind of putting it Marsh, but, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it looks amazing. And, and partly because as you sort of alluded to, like, this was, I think, the biggest budget he ever had and will and will ever have. You know, this is sort of like the highest water mark for his, waters you know, <laughs> yeah, the, the highest waters mark for his his foray into, you know, the world of, I don't know, I guess more conventional kind of mainstream uh, cinema circles, you know, and, and he has said, you know, he considers this the best film he ever made. That's what he says. You know, this is the best film I ever made. And I don't think that means it's his favorite movie or, you know, the best in in the sense of, you know, being most pure to him. But I think when he says that, I mean, he really does just mean like, I had everything I needed. Like I had, I had everything to like make a movie, you know, <laughs> like I had from his perspective, you know, I think it was like $13 million. Like from where he came from, I mean, he knows what it takes to make a movie with or without a crew, you know? Yeah. That's actually an interesting, almost contradiction about John Waters. Cause I've read that as well. And I, I think when I dug a little deeper, he did like, it was sort of specifically referring to the fact that he thinks it's his best movie because it is the most technically accomplished. Right. <laughs> because it's a movie that looks good by Hollywood standards. And it's funny because it seems like he did always want his movies to look like that. Um, yeah. And it's funny thinking of a guy like John Waters who made something like Multiple Maniacs <laughs> wishing that that movie looked like Serial Mom. But I guess maybe he did. Oh, yeah. But it's it's odd, right? Because to me, it's like I can't even imagine these movies looking any different than they already do. To me, it's baked so much into their design. Um, but it's funny thinking like, well... They were simply budget necessities all along, you know? Yeah, yeah, I guess <laughs> yeah. so. 
Yeah. I mean, he, yeah, he, he, he couldn't get <laughs> this money to do anything like that, right. you know? And even this film, like he, he talked about how like the studio fucking hated it, you know? And they, and they were constantly pushing against him in terms of like what he wanted to do. And, and they, they were trying to sabotage it. He said at like every turn, you know, they tried to sink it with a test screening. He said with an, with a, with a, with a handpicked test audience, that he described as the jurors in the Rodney King case. So <laughs> I bet there weren't a lot of moms at that screening because, honest to God, I feel like this movie is just designed for moms. I feel like how I, you'd even think just the general public attending the cinema that the moms would have just loved this film. Should have been a hit. Yeah, the things that she's killing over are the types of things that, you know, if— Maybe my mother didn't have, you know, her beautiful moral compass that maybe she wouldn't go and kill for, right? Like, yeah. Just like, oh, he, yeah. he doesn't wear his seatbelt or this teacher is bad-mouthing my child. You know, she she goes straight to business and she takes care of her world. And she's really doing what everyone's thinking, you know? Yeah. And that's the water's yeah. implication, oh, yeah. you know? It's like, have a bad thought about someone and uh, she'll take care of it, you know? Right. Because <laughs> she's the best mom ever, you know? And that means, you know, perceived slight, real slight, you know, she might, you know, have to kill you if you're upsetting one of her family. And I think that's oh, yeah. like also what's so beautiful about the contradictions of this movie. Waters is lambasting the family, the American family, and yet it's like a really wonderful portrayal of a family and like, oh, look sure. at how much they all love each other and how fierce mm -hmm. she is for her family. That comes through too. So you get both sides of the story you know yeah he's a i mean yeah it's, it's a good way of putting it i mean waters is a man of 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 contradictions he revels in in contradictions because again to me that's just that's the 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 nature of being a human is being a very conflicted contradictory creature uh and and yeah again like chantal i mean waters has said in on many occasions, you know, that he had a wonderful family life. He loved his parents and and he had a great relationship with his mom. So, you know, for him, it's not this 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 thing that's coming out of a place of like, yeah, families are are bad, you know? Like, no, families are ridiculous. And 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 you're lucky if you have a loving one. But but having a loving family doesn't mean it's 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 going to be any less uh, ridiculous or challenging or problematic than than having an unloving one. It's just a sort of like different set of 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 challenges and problems, you know. Uh, there is such a thing as being loved too much, <laughs> of loving someone so much, as you said, Marsh. That that yeah, when the when the principal uh, starts kind of nitpicking at the family and the family dynamic and the son's schoolwork, it sends her into a fucking blood rage where she she has to ram him with her car and and run over him several times in the parking lot. On top of the fact too that that he is chewing gum at that moment which really is the the you know the the cherry on top for her in deciding that this man must go i mean i think he does even say explicitly like you must be doing something wrong because she says like no i really take care of my children he's like well you must be doing something wrong because uh he's like maladjusted 
you know, and that is like, you can't say something like that to a mom. Yeah. So, of course, she's going to go and kill this guy, you know? And, you know, we should say as well, like, there's even prior to the murder, <laughs> there is uh, there is something under the surface in in Beverly Sutfin in this, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, this this Mrs. Cleaver, as I think she's described, that that uh, shows us her very contradictory nature. So, you know, she's introduced, yes, as just the, the perfect loving mom. And, and our first glimpse into any sort of like, you know, criminal act of of any kind is when these these cops show up to <laughs> investigate a series of prank calls that one of the ladies in the neighborhood is has been experiencing and of course she's just aghast and and the cops you know talking to her in for five minutes are like this woman has nothing to do with that i think the cop says like she's the most normal and nice person you'll ever meet and then it's almost like instantly after that we get her when the the husband's left for the day for work and the kids are off to school uh how does beverly spend her morning uh she picks up the phone call and and just assaults her neighbor dotty hinkle with the most Owl language you can imagine. And man, I forgot about that aspect. Hello? Is this the cocksucker residence? God damn you, stop calling here. Isn't this 4215 pussy way? You bitch! Now let me check the zip code. 212 fuck you! And I just love it. Uh, and I think also there's a really funny joke there. I don't know if it's intentional or not. That, you know, it's Kathleen Turner who has one of the most recognizable voices, you know? Like, you cannot mistake her voice for anyone else's and and that, you know, Dottie can't figure out who it is right. that's calling her pussy face and cocksucker on the phone. <laughs> I liked imagining Chantel's mom when she was writing about, you know, those gossipy bits of things that were going on in her life and in the neighborhood. I liked thinking that they were G-rated versions of the real shenanigans Chantel's mother was getting up to, which were uh, <laughs> what what Beverly was up to, causing mass chaos amongst all the ladies in town. No, it's it's amazing. I mean, like, this movie is, it, it just moves, yeah. you know? And it just moves, and there's so much that happens, and there's so, as you said, it's like, it's hard to keep up with it, because every scene is, 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 is perfect and funny and he gets in and he gets out like just when he needs to nothing like lingers at all and and it it's it goes so many different places and he kind of skewers so many different things i was dying i mean there's like a you know there's a gag a minute in this movie actually probably faster than that faster, there's more yeah. there's way more <laughs> gags than in a gag a minute i mean jesus uh and especially when uh there's a whole kind of like you know part of the film centered around a swap meet uh, because oh, Ricky yeah. Lake, who plays... Uh, Misty. Misty, the, the daughter, uh, she's, like, obsessed with the swap meet. Uh, and there's all these, like, objects, like Pee Wee Herman dolls and... Uh, uh, Don, not the Don Knotts. Uh, yeah. yeah. Fucking Don Knotts. <laughs> Holy shit. The Don Knotts painting. That was cracking me up. The Don Knotts painting. Yeah, there's all this like kitsch shit that's just like waters, you know, putting all this goofy stuff in there. Yeah. And the, the, the monumental. Fabergé egg Franklin mint Franklin like the amount mint. of times yes. that Franklin mint and again for me like you know Ryan you know not to call you out or whatever but when I like kind of picked this you were like 
really this movie about thinking about calling your mom or whatever and I, I was like I was like yeah you know my mom fucking loves Franklin Mint and like, <laughs> the, the way the way the women in this film say yeah. Franklin Mint like it, it is it is as if it was like the fucking holy grail you know definitely Franklin Mint you know <laughs> like, I mean I, I just I, I love it you know what I think about my mom and again like that's exactly what Waters is playing with like how how ridiculous objects are you know yeah. to one person to, uh, it's a it's a Fabergé egg by Franklin Mint to another person yeah it's a it's a fucking painting of Don Knotts you know and like people just love dumb shit you you know, and they place the, their own level of like value and importance on it. Again, like art, you know, like that's his biggest thing. It's like, you know, here's this this Fabergé egg and here's a fucking, yeah, like a P.B. Herman doll. And yet like in the eye of the beholder, like that's ultimately like where its value is is found. You know, it's 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 not for us to pick one and place it above another. You know, he said like. I'm a guy that loved watching fucking Mario Bava and, and yeah, Herschel Gordon Lewis. And yet he's like, I love art films as well. Like Waters loves like high art, you know, I mean, he, he talked about how like it was like Jonas Mikas who really like helped usher him into his like understanding of, of cinema beyond just the, you know, blood sucking freaks and shit like just that. Just that like watch Chantal on TV. Ackerman, the Jonas Mikas connection. Oh, another connect right there. Yeah. <laughs> and not only does this film have, you know, multiple gags a minute covers so much territory reflects on art, culture, objects. It also happens to cover uh, quite a bit of gauntlet history too. Yeah, that's um, right. There's, there are multiple gauntlet films uh, referenced within this uh the the deepest cut of which is uh in the video store deep in the background you out of focus you can see a vhs copy of mountains of the moon uh the oh film we discussed on rivalry yeah. we Week. both recognized it immediately <laughs> we're like pause <laughs> and it's like it's indecipherable it's just like in terms of the text but like we knew like that's the image the man being carried in the sunset you know god damn dude that is the deepest cut that, right that there. is the deepest cut from the gauntlet on on screen however there is another film that is very heavily featured um <laughs> yeah. in in heavily <laughs> prominently some would say gargantuanly <laughs> if that's a word yes and that is um uh, an old gauntlet favorite dorish wishman uh her film double Damn. agent or no 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 not yes, double agent. i think they oh no not double agent 73 was um, it or was it deadly weapons deadly weapons we we watched Deadly Weapons. I can't. I honestly can't tell you because those two movies to they, me. I think it's they like, shot them at the same time. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, and I guess I didn't necessarily recognize what scene from uh, Deadly Weapons yeah, well, that was, but like regardless of the scene, that's not really. It's Jesse what Morgan. <laughs> it's Jesse Morgan. <laughs> Jesse Morgan is in Serial Mom in a very very funny sequence. Where one of Matthew Lillard's friends, who Scotty, Scotty who doesn't wear a seatbelt, yeah, who's like a sex freak, uh, he looks like the younger guy whose name I'm also forgetting. The younger guy in the room, um, he's got like the same haircut, like with his hair combed back, and he's like same nerdy atmosphere to him. But he rented a Chesty Morgan picture um, for some late night delights. Uh, but in the comfort of his own room, and it eventually leads to a crazy climax of 
misunderstandings where not only do Matthew Lillard and his father and his sister burst into Scotty's bedroom mid-jerk, assuming that, you know, Beverly, their mother, was on their way to kill him, um, but the cops also raid the room thinking they're also on the tail of Beverly, and it becomes um, yeah. a Yeah, talk about a Hitchcockian nightmare. Like, the entire neighborhood bursts in while you're jerking off, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. Jesus. And the funny thing there, too, is like, and, and uh, this is water sense of humor, but it's like, uh, Scotty is like whacking it so, uh, f- like just f- like frantically, frantically to to like to this movie to Trusty Morgan, and I I was like again throw back to what I said uh, during our Doris Wishman episode, but like I can't think of anything that's like more of an instant turnoff for me than like. Chesty Morgan and a Doris Wishman film. Like it is the, the least sexy thing I've ever experienced. And I, I think it's just so funny that this guy is just like, just just going to town, beating his meat. There to, were less pornographic just... images then. You got to think about it just like news from home, you know? Like yeah. photographs sure. were a lot more difficult then, you know? And getting quality, you know, material, even in 1994, you know, it was it was harder then, you know. Yeah, if you couldn't afford a magazine subscription, if you had the paper trail of what you were picking up from the video store, it was harder. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> it did look like when he was jerking off that that bed was going to collapse and, like, fall through the floor. It seemed like he was shaking oh, the foundation yeah. of that house. And that's the thing. Like, it's such a fine line for waters in his films you know like the tone that he can strike where where things can at times be be sort of like very grounded in like real human emotion and at other times like a a fucking cartoon and and he really walks that line uh among the best in terms of creating these movies that are are totally real and totally artificial in the words of Alimbadu, you know? Yeah. Like his movies are 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 yes, they are fantasias and they 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 don't take place in the real world, but as we were kind of discussing earlier, they are so rooted in like real thoughts, real experiences, real people, real stories, real fetishes, you know, as strange and and as otherworldly as, as they may seem to us. You know, this movie's like peppered with that. We talked about like the capital punishment thing, but there's also a big, you know, like a, a, a big uh, a point that is made about recycling in the film. Oh, yeah. And like Waters is on record as being like, no, that's le- – like so much of what she cares about are things that he yeah. cares about. Yeah. Like, you know, that there's the scene with the garbage bin where they're they're criticizing the neighbor who doesn't recycle, you know, her friend Rosemary. You know, you boys work so hard for the environment, I thought I'd bring you something. A little drink never hurt anybody. Thank you, ma'am. <laughs> damn, that's good stuff. <laughs> Believe that goddamn litter bugger. Oh, I have told her and told her. It takes 90 to 100 years for a tin can to decompose, and she still won't recycle. Cost the taxpayers millions of dollars last year, but she don't care nothing about the national budget. He's he's saying these things that are very much connected to the world, and he wants us to to think about those. But yes, in in something that is 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 just absolutely gonzo, you know, <laughs> filmmaking at times, you know, it's it's so out there. There's also quite a few real people, as you mentioned, in the film, right? Uh, oh, yeah. We have, of course, 
uh, Suzanne Summers, who is going to allegedly play Serial Mom in the film adaptation of the true story. Uh, there's Joan Rivers in there. We get a, a punk uh, show scene where L7 is playing as Camel Lips. Uh, yeah. and a, a, the little waters flourish, obviously, but like it's just L7 playing. Uh, and then also, last but not least, uh, Patty Hearst herself plays uh, the juror uh, at the end. Juror number yeah, eight. Juror number eight with the, the shoes. Juror, <laughs> yes, who commits <laughs> the worst crime of all in the film. Like, I think the honestly, the crime that uh, that that like commits the sin that that she is most upset about in the entire film and that is that she's wearing white shoes after labor day and i love the courtroom scene how it starts you know because her defense attorney is like starting to make his case to try to defend this woman against these these horrible crimes and she's like getting her attorney's attention you know and then he looks over and she's just scribbled down like Juror number eight, wearing white shoes after Labor Day. And the attorney, like, turns to the court then and is just like, Beverly Sutphin is insane. (laughs) (laughs) It's like he suddenly realizes, you know, like, oh, fuck, yeah, my client is nuts, you know. Uh, He did say in this interview that, you know, for him, he's like, no, 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 of course, you know, all these things that she, like, I don't think anybody should be killed. I'm against capital punishment. I don't think anybody should be murdered. He's like, except... I really do feel that way about the white shoes after Labor Day. Like that is, he's yeah. like, that is the only thing that I would actually have someone executed for. In this life. is like his Larry David movie, you know? It it's is. just like yeah. all these little things that bother him are then, yeah, you know, wrapped into this mother character and then uh, sent on a rampage. It is, it's maybe <laughs> yeah. my favorite line in the film when Kathleen Turner does, you know, seek her vengeance on that juror wearing white after Labor Day and she's about to kill her and the juror exclaims, no, fashion has changed. <laughs> and it's, yeah, still, it's yeah. still not enough. Uh-huh. Rip. And it is funny, right? I mean, like, again, uh, his him, like, putting himself in these films and, and the people that he cared about. I mean, this guy made really powerful connections with so many different people. And, like, you know, again, for him, he's making a movie about I guess you could say a sort of sympathetic criminal, uh, you know, maybe a, a throwback to our last yeah. week's episode. But like, you know, here he's got Patty Hearst, you know, and 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 he's he's he worked with her. I think she was in a few of his films, as a matter of fact. And, you know, he had a great relationship with her and he was he had a very strong friendship with uh, I'm blanking on her name right now. But um, uh, one of the Manson right. girls, Leslie I'm blanking on her name right now. But, you know, a person that so many people, like, just just would... I think visit Van Houten, so Leslie yeah, Van Houten. Yeah, because I, I also almost brought it up earlier, but I couldn't remember which one, when you said, like, he was a true crime freak. I mean, he's the ultimate true crime freak. He yeah. became friends with a Manson girl. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and again, like, he... He said, uh, and and this is even it's even said in the film, you know. But but when like asked about that, you know, he's like, well, look, like, you know, uh, he he again, he spent a lot of time in prisons, like making relationships with with prisoners of all kinds, not just like the celebrity <laughs> ones like that, but like, you know, he taught at at prisons. He would go and volunteer and and teach in prison, and he was saying like. I'm against capital punishment because generally speaking, so many murders are just somebody who had a really, really, really bad day, you know? And again, also recognizing that there's conditions that create crimes and, and crimes of passion. And he's like, I don't think that anybody
anybody is beyond saving. I don't think that anybody is 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 so far to the point where uh, they can't be be rehabilitated or or given a second chance. I mean, he really is you know, like the patron saint of, of strays and lost souls and oddballs and I guess even criminals on a certain level. I mean, the guy believes this like very much inside of him. You know, Beverly's an extreme, but on a certain level, he's even saying like, is she really that bad, folks? <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? It's good to be bad. I do think this is one of like my favorite, like, farcical portrayals of a trial you know again i think it speaks to water's cinephilia and his love of court tv you know because like oh yeah the courtroom like yeah the courtroom is just like you know his take on a classic hollywood courtroom scene but it's just like madness or chaos or just like the extreme and just like gets to the point you know, there's like no time spent in there. Disorder in the court, baby. Yeah, I was surprised to see how many similarities there were with the trial of Tim Heidecker. I mean, they clearly pulled, I think, a little bit from this. I mean, even just her deciding to represent herself. and a classic uh, move. Yeah, her lawyer determining not only because it's effective for the case, pleading insanity, but just deciding that his client was totally insane. And, you know, Tim didn't like that and neither did Beverly. So she she takes the reins. Yeah. And in a similar way, you know, like her whole defense isn't even necessarily to to say that she didn't do any of this stuff, but to just uh, kind of muddy the waters so much and and really be, you know, like just turn the tables on everybody who accuses her of something, you know, to, to sort of like condemn everyone yeah. in their in their own way. You know, I mean, like one of the witnesses that like hilarious, like stoner girl <laughs> is just like. Like, like practically like tripping when she's on the stand, you know? And then uh, I think my favorite witness, Mr. Pickles, Marvin Pickles, the guy, the guy who saw her earlier in a bathroom preparing to like beat some guy. To when death he was looking a, through the glory hole. Yes. He, he had made a glory hole and, and that's how he saw her in the men's bathroom. And so, you know, she just simply gets him by just like. By just like flapping her legs underneath the table, giving him a little show, giving him a little peep show to the point where he just like breaks down in sort of like sexual ecstasy on the on the stand. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I think he even pointed out the, the funny thing for him reflecting again on this was he was like this trial was right before the OJ trial. You know, again, another sort of like ridiculous celebrity trial. And, and that was the and, mood and in 94, right? Right before this was the big uh, Menendez brothers yeah. trial. Right. And he was like, he talked about how obsessed he was with that trial. Of course. Because there's also like even just the media frenzy of the trial, how they start selling all that merch. You know, they're selling hats, they're selling books. And I think even some Someone says like, and it maybe it it was a reference to the Menendez brothers. Serum up t-shirts, get them here. Twelve dollars. Wally last plus tax. Mastercard and Visa. I'll take two. All right, ma'am. I wish they had something like this at the Kennedy kid trial. Sign right here. Signature and home phone. You read about it in the paper. Serial mom. She's Beverly something, and she's my mom. Just what we need more merch. I think my other like favorite thread in the film um, and favorite moment comes from, you know, Matthew Lillard 
loving horror movies and his other horror hound friends and them getting kind of excited at the idea that his mom might be a serial killer. But it's then later in the film when they see that woman who's getting her toes licked by her dog. You know, she's murdered and there's blood all over the floor. You know, when Matthew Lillard, like, lifts up his girlfriend to see, she comes down completely shook and her first words are... And I love I love that reality creeping in for the big horror fans. You know, it's like always, you know, those who love horror love treading that line, you know, of like that feeling of danger you get from horror movies. But yeah, the moment it becomes real, it's obviously way too much uh, that you were asking for there. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And he follows up that joke later. I don't know if you noticed it, but like when that girl is in in the courtroom, yeah, she's had like a total sea change because she's in the courtroom and now she's reading a book on Gandhi. Yep. Right, right. <laughs> so she's now a total pacifist, yeah. right? She she doesn't believe in violence of any kind anymore. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. I mean, there's just so many of these little touches in the, in the film that that's just so much creativity and 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 loving care in in every setup and every shot and every scene that that just really reminded me like what a fucking special talent this dude is and imagine if he'd had this kind of money throughout his career you know what what i mean obviously he has an amazing legacy of 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 films but considering that this at you know 13 million was the highest peak in terms yeah. of his budgets and and studio support to make something i mean and even then it was a reluctant support as we discussed like man what what else could he have done you know so, yeah, Ryan, these are movies that made us, for one reason or another, think about calling our mother. Now, what's a film that that uh, makes you want to call mom? Sure. Well, funny enough, I'm going to say I'm a little different this week with this. I'm going to recommend two films that are over 100 years apart. Uh, from when they released uh, to sort of signal the, you know, the virtues and power of of mothers. Um, the first one is from a filmmaker who I've actually recommended before, Victor Sjostrom. He has a film from 1913 called Ingborg Holm. You know, as a film from 1913, uh, it has some pretty primitive mise-en-scene where editing wasn't really something that was um, heavily considered, and yet the, the power of, of mothers really shines through, and, and it's a tragic film that uh, will, will make you want to call your mom. And then the other film came out last year, and that was Petite Mama. And I'm not going to describe what that movie is about because the joy of discovering the concept of that film about halfway through it, and the film is only a brief, like, 73 minutes. Once I realized what was going on, to be honest, I was shocked that another movie hadn't been made with this concept already because it was just so clever. And I actually, you know, I think it's really understated. This is a a Celine Chiama film. Uh, She's the filmmaker who did Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which I don't particularly love, but I think this film is is quite nice, very touching, and yeah... uh, a very nice film from recent years. So if you want to see, you know, a pair of moms over a hundred years apart, check out both of those films. Uh, well, it was Ryan's turn this week. Uh, I believe Marsh, you're up next. So 
What do you got for us next week? I've been thinking a lot recently about, uh, you know, certain living situations because uh, I've got former, you know, guest on the gauntlet, Alex Sherman. He's going to be he's going to be moving downstairs from uh, from where I live uh, in a couple weeks here. Uh, And Ryan, I've had you in my apartment all week. And so I was thinking about, you know, roommates, especially when I got home from work the other day and the uh, the stove was just on. You know, nothing was on, on it. What? And there was just a blue flame. Come and on. And I just thought, damn, my fucking roommate, you know? Ryan, not Kyle. Kyle, I miss you. Come, come home soon. So I was just thinking about that, and that's the topic. The topic is roommates. I want you to bring me films about living together. Can do. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh... It's always a challenge, I can tell Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Know? As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email to Marsh's Mailbag. At, 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 my voice is like dead. My voice is gone. I'm so sorry. At, gaunt, at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Nouveau surprise m'attendait hier soir en entrant cette allée. Tu as l'air de bien venir. Et au-dessus du talet, à papa, il a l'air en